So if you have a Bible, open it up to chapter 8. We're in a study together in the book of Acts in what we were calling Spirit-Empowered Mission. Acts chapter 8, Bible's in the back. If you do not have one, you can go right out there, right by the sound booth and grab a Bible. Uh, we are in chapter 8, and if you notice, we've been taking our time kind of walking through this chapter. Um, hopefully, once we get through chapter 8, which will wrap up next week, we'll move a little bit uh, quicker at a, at a faster pace, taking larger pieces of narrative. Otherwise, we'll be in Acts till 2025. So, we'll do that soon. But Acts chapter 8 is an extremely important and strategic place in the life of the church. So we want to stop here and focus on some important things as this church is, is, is expanding and things are changing. Up to chapter 8, we said the focus has been, uh, the church's focus has been in Jerusalem. But here in chapter 8, things begin to change uh, because of severe persecution that led to the death of Stephen in chapter 7, we see the scattered church now beginning to fulfill the mandate that Jesus Christ gave to the church to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, to the whole world. And Luke, the human author of Acts, tells us that, tells us how the persecution that led many people to scatter were gospelizing, we said, as they went. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, those who were being scattered went about preaching. That word preaching is the word, uh, uh, more of a word of sharing and, and deliberately and intentionally telling others in conversation about the perfect life, the, the atoning death, the, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. Last week, we were introduced to a man named Philip. He was a fellow servant of Stephen who got murdered in chapter 7, and he was an evangelist. He was a preacher. The Bible tells us that he went to Samaria to preach the gospel. And if you remember, Samaria is the region between Jerusalem and Galilee to the north. Samaria's right in between. And it was a no-go area for the Jewish people for a very long time. There has been a, 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 an ethnic hostility between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-Samaritan. They were considered a religious apostate. The Samaritan had actually uh, erected their own statue, their own, excuse me, their own temple in the city. And um, they rejected most of the Old Testament. The only parts of the Old Testament that the Samaritans believed was the word of God was the Torah, the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, which, by the way, leaves out many, many prophecies according, uh, many prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus, and the son of David, and, and the king, kingly line of David. And there was, a, there was a lot of bad blood between them. And the Jewish people, to show you how bad this was, the Jewish people who lived in Galilee would come down to Jerusalem during the mandated feast would go way outside of Samaria, instead of coming through Samaria, which is straight through, they would go across the Jordan and then come down the side of Jordan and come back into Jerusalem and go back the same way. They would literally, now, you know, this is not an hour difference in your car. This is not skipping an exit, okay? This is like a, a, a long time uh, uh, on foot just to avoid the Samaritan, just to avoid people that you don't like. And I know some of you are thinking, I travel a couple of miles by foot to avoid some of the people that I don't like. Well, <laughs> welcome to the sinful race. But anyway, but that's what makes it, that's what makes the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you remember, uh, so 
real because it was the Samaritan who was the good neighbor. It was a Samaritan that showed uh, uh, love and, and, and grace and mercy, not the Jewish people. That's what got them so angry. Last week, we also saw the Samaritans receive the word of God and believed Philip as he preached the gospel because of the signs that he performed. And look at verse 8 of chapter 8. It says, there was much joy, much joy in the city. And last week, we not only met Philip, but if you remember, and you were here, we met Simon the sorcerer, the magician, the miracle worker, the one impressing the whole city with his magic and his tricks, his power over people that came by demonic oppression. And they thought he was great. He called himself great. You know you got a big head when you're calling yourself great, right? The people, it says, were amazed by Simon the sorcerer. And we ended in verse 13 of chapter 8 where it says, Even Simon, chapter 8, verse 13, even Simon himself believed and being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He said, at least I believe Simon was not a believer. We'll talk about that a little bit today, but maybe you do. But Simon, according to this passage, was so fascinated I think Luke has given us a glimpse into Simon's heart. He was so fascinated by what he saw. But he was fascinated at the wrong thing. Yes, he made a public profession. Yes, he was publicly baptized. But I think he didn't have a genuine heart conversion, which we will see today. No real change of heart. No real conversion. No new birth. That's where we pick up our story today. Preaching of Philip. Simon the sorcerer. Church scattered gospelizing and preaching the gospel wherever they go. Here's our outline. I hope you like outlines. If you don't, I don't know what to tell you. But here it is anyway. Because I like outlines. Some people just tell, I like outlines. I don't know where I'm going. You know, I don't know where I'm headed. This is where we're headed. The concerns of the apostles spends most of the time. We'll see the apostles go and see what's going on. The corruption in Simon. Simon got some problems. Then we'll look at the confrontation from Peter. Peter's going to address them. The, the, the narrative's going to go from Philip to Peter. Transition. And then the continuation in mission. That's where we're going. So first the concerns. Look at verse 14 with me. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So Luke tells us that the apostles who, who stayed in Jerusalem, if you remember, during the persecution, I think the persecution was primarily against the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, but the, the apostles, the Jewish-speaking Christians, stayed in, in Jerusalem. And it was during that time that Philip went and preached the word of God, and, and they responded. And so Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, hear about this, and they send the two big guns, right? They send John and they send Peter to investigate, to see what's going on in Samaria. Now, if you remember, I want you to track with me because this is important at this point. Um, we said that as we study and we read and we interpret, right, we try to understanding the text, what does it mean, as we interpret the passage, we have to be careful because many times when we read narratives, historical genre, historical narratives, it many times is just telling us what happened. It's giving us a story, not necessarily what it means. Many times within the context or within the text itself, we don't know whether or not this is normative, something that we should see happen regularly in the church or not. 
Another way of saying it is, as we, as we read this narrative, what is being done in this narrative, as the story is being told, is it prescriptive? Is it something we should copy and do normative, or is it descriptive, just telling us about an event? I bring that up because this passage has been debated severely. Particularly, what prompted the apostles to go to Samaria, and what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit with laying of hands? What is this, the fact that Samaria believed and then the apostles had to be sent, laying their hands on the Samaritans, and then they received the Holy Spirit? And that, that, has, that, has, been, that has boggled the minds of many, and there's been a hot debate over that passage. So, guess what? We do expository preaching here, so we're going to deal with that passage today. And what we see here is the apostles going, I believe, from the text, going to check out what's going on. It doesn't say that they didn't trust Philip. It doesn't say that they thought something wrong was going on up there. It doesn't say that the apostles went to see because they were jealous or they didn't want to see anybody get blessed or they didn't want to see anyone get saved because they had this, you know, look at me kind of mentality. That they, they, you know, no one's getting, you know, there should be no involvement unless we're there. It simply says they heard that was going on, that was going well in Samaria, and I believe as good leaders, as loving pastors, people who are called to serve and take responsibility and, and, and to exercise, excuse me, oversight in the manner, matter, go. They, they, they go. It doesn't say when they got there, they realized that the Spirit of God was not given to them. But, but I think they just went because they were, they were concerned. God had given them responsibility. They heard Samaria had received the word. They wanted to go check out. And now they're on this fact-finding mission of love, care, and concern. That's what I believe. Because there's nothing in the text that says otherwise. And we'll see later on, they're rejoicing with them. And they find themselves praying. Look at verse 15. So Peter and John, who come down and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, verse 16, he had not, he... Personal pronoun, he's a person, third person of the Trinity. He had not yet fallen on any one of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's water baptism. They, then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This passage, and the interpretation of this passage, has brought huge <laughs> debate, Right? Let, let's just, let's just, we're going to go on a little journey. I want you to track with me, okay? Let's just, let's just state some facts. Let's state some facts before we find out what is, this, what is this saying to us. Let's state some undeniable facts before we can get into the interpretation. Number one, here's a fact for you. The rest of the Bible, even in the book of Acts itself, okay, we know that the laying of hands of the apostle is not the official and normal way people receive the Spirit. In fact, when we look at the day of Pentecost and the three other, what we'll see is these little mini Pentecosts that happened in Acts. It is only here and in chapter 19 that the Spirit falls on them through the laying of hands. So out of four separate times that this major incident or this Pentecost happens and the three mini Pentecosts, two times laying on hands, two times not the laying of hands. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10, there was no laying of hands. Nothing prompted them and God poured out His Spirit. 
And yet, in, 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 and that's in chapter 2 and chapter 10. Yet in other two places, there's been the laying of hands. So you have the laying of hands, giving of the Spirit, and then sometimes there's no laying of hands, giving of the Spirit. Sometimes it's done by the apostles. Sometimes it's not done by the apostles. In fact, in chapter 9 of Acts, Ananias, a non-apostle, lays hands on Paul to receive the Spirit in chapter 9. So sometimes the Spirit was given with the laying of hands, sometimes it wasn't. The point... I think it's that God's salvation, God's gifts, are under God's control. God's sovereign, they are not. You can't manipulate God. That's the point. He will save, he will dispense his spirit according to his sovereign mercy and grace. What is also a fact is that this text proof, this text, many times is used as a proof of a second blessing. It can't be so. They say, you know what, you're, you, once you're saved like the Samaritans, then you have to wait and wait and wait until you're baptized by the Spirit and it's subsequent of being a Christian and then you receive the second blessing, this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. First of all, the Bible's clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, any man that does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Jesus. Can't get more black and white than that. Either you belong to Jesus, you have a Spirit, or you don't. So why is it wrong to, to, to see the second blessing? Look, look what it says. Look at the text. It says that the Spirit had not yet been given. You can't get a second endowment and blessing when the first hasn't been given. Now, I'm not that bright, but I do believe two comes after one. Right? So the Spirit had not been given. Right? No one had the Spirit. That's why they went there. No, excuse me, that's why they were there laying hands on them. And when they got there, they were like, you know what, you have not received the Spirit yet. Not, oh, you, you, you have the Spirit dwelling within you, you belong to Christ, and now all of a sudden we have to give you this bath. No, that's not what happened. It says right in the text, the Spirit hasn't been given yet. Second fact about this text, undeniable, is that at this time in the history of the church, in redemptive history, was like no other time in all the history of mankind, okay? That, now, we could disagree on what that means, but that, what I just said, is factual. We're in a time period right now when Old Testament saints are becoming New Testament saints. Let me ask you, James, John, Matthew, all the apostles, while they were waiting in Jerusalem, waiting for the baptism of the Spirit, were they believers or not? The answer is yes. Of course they were. But they're waiting for the promised New Testament baptism of the Spirit. And they're waiting. No other time in the history of the church, unless you're 2,000 years old and you're here, and you're still waiting, we could talk afterwards, but no other time were there Old Testament saints waiting for the New Testament promise of the Holy Spirit. When Pentecost came, and in Jesus' own words, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, what happened? Well, according to 1 Corinthians, all believers were baptized with the Holy Spirit, baptizo, immersed into the body. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. But just as the body is one and has many members, physical, and the members of the body through many are one, so it is with Christ's body. For in one spirit we were all, the Greek meaning for that is all, all means all, that's all all means, baptized into one body. Jew, Greek, slaves are free. We're all made to drink from one spirit. What Paul is saying is that when he, the third person of the Trinity, 
came and regenerates believers, he submerges us into the body of Christ. We now have communion with Christ. At baptism, Jesus is the baptizer. We are, we are baptized and we become one with Christ. He comes into our heart. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I am in Christ, Paul's favorite term. Ephesians 1 says, in him, you have heard the word of truth. You've heard the gospel of your salvation. You believed in him and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So according to Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 1, the teaching about baptism is clear. Very clear. A person is baptized at conversion. Therefore, the instance of baptism in Acts that we see here is not, that, that, that is first water baptism and then spiritual baptism is an exception. It's an exceptional occasion because like the apostles, they're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, no other place in Scripture, no other place in the time of the church. So to say that this incident, and then just, just to rip it out of context, rip it out of historical context and apply it to today is wrong. Again, unless you're 2,000 years old, right? And here's something else to chew on as I thought about this passage. You know Jesus was in Samaria. Met the woman at the well. Jesus confronted her that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know what she did? She went back to the city and told everybody, could this be the Messiah? They were waiting for a Messiah too, a different one. Could this be the Messiah? And John chapter 4 says, that many Samaritans from that town believed in Christ, believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. You know, I thought about that. Could it be that they went back and believed like John and, and the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles, waiting, Old Testament saints waiting to become New Testament saints with the baptism of the Holy Spirit? But the other question is, too, why the laying of hands? Why was the Spirit given? Okay, it was subsequent to, to them believing. We could, see, we could see the time period. The people are, people are, are being transitioned into from the Old Testament, believing to the New Testament, baptism of the Spirit. We see that, but why the laying of hands? Listen to John Stott, great theologian. He says this, The most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit is that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed not only outside Jerusalem, but inside Samaria. He's talking about post-resurrection. The delay was only temporary until the apostles had come down to investigate, had endorsed Philip's bold policy of Samaritan evangelism and prayed for their converts, and had thus given a public sign to the whole church as well to the Samaritan converts themselves that they were bona fide Christians to be incorporated into the redeemed community on precisely the same terms as Jewish converts. End quote. In Acts, this reception of the Spirit, these many Pentecosts that happens, happens in four separate groups. It happens to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, and then to the apostles, excuse me, to the, the followers of John the Baptist. All the while, making it clear that the gospel has been proclaimed and received by not just the Jews, but other than the Jews. This outpouring of the Spirit upon these class of people points them back to the original outpouring of Pentecost, showing the unity of the gospel, that they are one in Christ. You don't have the Samaritan Christians, the Jewish Christians, the Je Christ, the body of Christ. No Greek, nor slave, nor Jew, 
one in Christ. In fact, in, in John, uh, excuse me, Acts 11, Peter makes it clear when the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius that now they all said, wow, the Gentiles now, God is pouring their spirit out. It was a point of showing the, the, the commonality of one body. Not one body here, one body there. You have your, it's one body in Christ. You know, trying to just try to put this in historical perspective in my brain. The Samaritans had to submit to the apostolic laying of hands from the people whom they hated as well. And yet they had to submit. They had to acknowledge a measure of dependency upon the identification with the Jewish people and the Jewish Jerusalem church. They had to repent that they could do it on their own, that there was, a, there was a Jewishness, that Jesus was a Jew, that salvation comes from the Jew. It must have been humbling to the Samaritans. Just as humbling it was to the Jerusalem church, who had to get away from their nationalistic ideas and ideology. We talked about that. And had to see and repent from their narrow-mindedness. They had to believe that God was the God for more than just the Jews. It was a humbling experience, I think, for both of them. Lastly, I think the reason that we see this, and one is the transitional period. Number two is this identifying one body, both Jew and Samaritan, humbling both of them. But I wonder how much, you guys could talk about this in community group, I wonder how much of this had to do with Simon's power that was being seen and, 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 and um, embraced by the Samaritans. That now all of a sudden, the same Jesus who had come to Samaria earlier, who had preached at the well, who said he was the living water, who said he was the Messiah, who called 12, sent them out with their, his authority to preach the gospel, and those 12 go and lay hands, and then the Lord Jesus shows up and baptizes them in the Holy Spirit, full circle. It's not about Simon's power. It's about God's power. Let's bring me point number two. The corruption. Is this working there? Okay. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw woo, that the Spirit was given through the laying of hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power. Give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Now let me just say this with, with kindness and love. I hate the prosperity gospel. Word, faith, movement, call it what you want. Kenneth Hagin, Gloria Copeland, Robert Tillman, Fred Price, Charles Capp. Some people even throw Joyce Myers in that crew that believe that prosperity and financial prosperity and perfect health is for you, no matter what, if you have faith. That's God's will for your life, and you're not praying enough. You have a lack of faith. This passage, throughout this week as I was studying, that this passage speaks directly to that false, damnable gospel. Here Simon sees God's power and requests that authority to distribute the power so he could make money. What do we say about Simon? What have we seen so far? He was the man. Philip was the man up until, excuse me, Simon was the man until Philip showed up. He had great power. He had captivated the city. He was probably a very wealthy man, driving out demons. 
you know, excuse me, you know, having power over people by demons. It was Philip that drove out demons. So he has power over people. He's captivated the city. He looks at Philip. The power Philip is wielding and says, let me get that. There's a lot of money to be made with that kind of power. Can I get some of that? I can be the man again. I could be rich. I can have people flocking to me. I will get that power so I can do what I want. And I can get from God what I want. Riches and power. That's paganism. The worship of false gods to give me goods. To give me money. To give me big houses. A fertile wife. Many cars. All kinds of things. They invent gods in their own mind to serve them rather than the other way around. The word faith theology has turned Christianity into a system that is no different than any form of paganism. Where God can be coerced, God can be manipulated, God can be controlled, God can be exploited for my own good. Simon, just like the prosperity gospel, sees the power of the Spirit and he wants to put it to use for his own glory and to do what he wants to do it. The Bible teaches, however, the Holy Spirit is a person, enables a believer to do what God wants. They got it totally backwards. I want you to see how Simon is the quintessential of the movement that so closely resembles the destructive greed that has infiltrated the church in the prosperity gospel. Paul and the other apostles identify them as dangerous, false teachers and urge Christians to run from them. 1 Timothy 6. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food, clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, Paul writes, being rich, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the very thing this prosperity gospel preachers are preaching is encouraging the very thing that puts people into ruin and into destruction, causing piercing and great pain and sorrow and stress. Okay? Now, now money's not the issue. It's the love, desire, and craving for it. And to teach those that that's what God wants for your life, to be rich, to, to claim it, to name it, to call upon it, is damnable. It's not sinful to have a lot of money. It's sinful to hoard money. Bigger houses, bigger farms, bigger cattle, bigger um, uh, barns. Ephesians 4 says, work hard. Make a lot of money. Work hard. To share with those in need. At some point, at some point, at some point, some of those guys who are flying around in their $40 million jets have to be quenching the spirit. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, if they're even saved, which I don't think many of them are. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. 
Why would he say that? Because riches are such a dangerous thing. Materialism, the, the corruption of Simon is desire to possess things instead of love and treasuring Christ who made all things. Following Jesus, they say the prosperity gospels. And I, Simon would say the same thing. Following Jesus, the pathway to riches and power is a sign that we belong to God. It's really a corruption of the heart. It really is. People like that want to use God for personal power. But the concept of submitting to a sovereign God, relying upon him and his spirit is foreign to those people. The corruption, let me get that. I could do something with that. And Peter, and if you don't believe me, you're like, all right, you're going off on this tangent about this prosperity gospel. Okay, let's see what Peter has to say to Simon, who wants power and money. Let's see. Peter said to him, may your silver and perish, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, the words, may, may, may your silver perish with you, very hard word, very hard phrase to translate in, in the original language. J.P. Phillips, it is, Famous translation, this is what he says. To hell with you and your money. Jewish idiom for today. To hell with you and your money. He says that in part because he goes on to say you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Many theologians and many, many commentators, commentators I read says that's kind of like an Acts 29 curse that, that Peter is now warning Simon on, on the curse that would come upon because he actually has no lot with him. He has no place with the gospel. There's no, there's no, his language does not jive with those who know and love Jesus. Because his heart is not right before God. That's what it says. Now there are those who think, and we talked about this in our community group. I hope you have one. You can talk about it too. There are those who think that he is, Peter is warning and confronting Simon as a brother because he has Eared from his way. He has, he has wandered from the way. And he wants to bring him back. Granted, if that's what you believe, that's fine. There's those who think he's a make-believer. Only given intellectual consent. But not really converted to Christ. If Simon was a true believer. Let, let's just talk about that for a second. If Simon was a true believer, this is at least a very serious warning of what the church, the history of the church has come to know as simony. Simon is named after Simon uh, Magus. It's the act of paying and receiving sacraments and ordinations and holy positions in the hierarchy of the church through money, through gain. W.A. Criswell writes this. He says, The church became a part of the state at the time of Constantine's conversion. Simony was already practiced, but it increased in the buying of ecclesiastical office church office, and its benefits. He says a bishop's office could be bought for so much money. The same was true of the archbishop, a cardinal, an ecclesiastic living in parishes and monasteries. Simony finally gave rise to the Reformation when all over Europe indulgences were sold in order to get money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, end quote. But Simon was not a believer, but he thinks he was. This is a very serious warning to us as well who thinks that we can make just an intellectual consent, a confession, go through some motions, and that makes us right with God. That's not the case. 
Simon, I don't think, had a change of heart, the fundamental and basic change of heart. It's subtle, but its warning is serious. Maybe he got into Christianity because he loved and hoped that he would continue to have power over people. He can get them to do what he wants. He can gain wealth and power over others. In that case, he, he, was, he was still in a very real sense in control of his own life. He was his own Lord. He was his own Savior. And the way he saved himself was gaining power over others. Now he's getting involved in a religion that says, wow, he's going to give great power. Look at all this power. I can have real control over others. I can have a sense of, of feeling secure, of, of acceptance of somebody. I, 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 I'm not worthless. I'm not, I'm not helpless. I now have power over others. And so he says, I, I, I'm a believer. But his real salvation is the power he had or wanted over others, not Christ's power over him. No change of heart. There's also a subtle great warning for all of us, I think, who feel that we need to be the center of our own lives. We need approval. We need to be somebody in order to be fulfilled, a person of worth and value. We need, we need others to say, good for you. So we may appear converted to Christ, but we get involved in this, in this church thing because people are nice here and they, and they validate me. Well, that's true, but it's not ultimate. Our real salvation at that point is our approval of others, that others approve us and not Christ. So you see, this mistake of simony is much easier than you think. One wants to have power and authority over others to validate themselves to be their own savior. The other one craves attention. They say, I know where I can get that. Simon tried to obtain spiritual power to promote himself, to gain recognition. You know, coming to Christ to gain a status is simony. Serving with your eye in the advancement of what you can get out, particularly over others, is simony. Seeking spiritual gifts for the promotion of of one's own self-glory is simony. Even seeking to be seen as a godly person can be simony. Peter accused him and says, you know what? All that stuff, all that self-salvation by gaining power and personhood through money, through power, prestige, is, is bondage. Look what he says. He says, you're in, a, you're in a, the gall, the poison of bitterness, the bondage of iniquity. Bondage means, you know, they, they, they are prisoner to sin. The Bible says, we looked at last week, that Jesus set us free. Not that we are perfect, not that we are sinless, but the Bible says that those who belong to Jesus have been set free from the power and the bondage of sin. The Bible says that no matter how moral you are, no matter, no matter what you're doing, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you're in bondage to sin, Romans 6. The Bible says that you cannot break free without the power of the gospel to free you so you can please the Lord, Romans 8. Jesus sets us free from the bondage of sin, Satan, and frees us by the power of, of Christ to, to be slaves to God. Not that we're perfect. Simon's heart was not right. Peter knows what it is, knows what it means to have a heart not right. So rather than just simply pronounce curse upon him, look at verse 22. He says to him and he rolls out, listen, repent. 
Turn from your wickedness. Pray to the Lord if possible. Then the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Even Simon's wicked, cold, bitter heart can be forgiven. Do you know that? No matter how cold you are, no matter how distant you are, no matter what bondage you're in, no matter where you've gone and what you do, do you know that you can be forgiven of your sins? He says, repent. You know what that means? It means to turn from your sin. MacArthur says it's not just an intellectual uh, 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 thought. It's a turning of the whole heart to Christ. 2 Corinthians says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief only produces death. There's an acknowledgement of sin. There's an acknowledgement of guilt. There's an overwhelming sense of, of guilt. But there's no turning to God. That's worldly Worldly, worldly grief. It's brokenness for the wrong reason. It's getting caught. It's worldly consequences. Godly sorrow acknowledges the sin and the pain that it caused our creator God. And it's the determination to turn from it. Broken God's heart. So the question is, did Simon repent? Look at verse 24. Simon says, pray for me. Pray for me. Now, many people say, you know what? He, he called out, pray for me, Peter. Peter, I, I can't do this. Pray for me. It really is an indicator of his heart that he wasn't truly repentive. Again, John Stott says, Simon's response to Peter's rebuke is not encouraging. He showed no sign of repentance. Instead of praying for forgiveness, and what really concerned him was not that he might receive the pardon of God, but only that he might escape the judgment of God. Simon's tears may have been tears of remorse or rage, but not of repentance. Pray for me. Peter says, look, you can repent. You can turn from your sin. You can be forgiven. The continuation of mission. I don't want to end on that note. I don't want to end on Simon's issues and his corrupted heart. So let's end in verse 25. Now when? They had testified and spoken to the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages in Samaritans, of the Samaritans. The text clearly shows a change of heart toward these people. They were rejoicing. They were teaching. They were preaching. The apostles were taking every moment of every time available to them to share the good news of the gospel. Now remember, the apostles went to Samaria first out of concern that everyone understood the gospel. And became obvious that Simon did not understand. The very truth, the the very rudimentary things of the gospel. Once they had that confirmed, they were free to go. Turn with me one last time to verse 20. Where we find what the problem is for Simon, for many of us today. And why the apostles were, were so overjoyed. That leaving Samaritans, they just continue to preach the gospel. Why? It's right in this verse. May your silver perish for you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. There it is. You can't buy it with money. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it by your effort. There's nothing you can offer for your salvation to a perfect and holy God so that he will forgive you and accept you. What are you going to do to earn God's mercy and grace? Give him your sin give him your 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 stupid decisions in your life and he's going to somehow embrace sin he can't do that he's perfect he is holy 
Listen, the reason Simon, now track with me a couple more minutes here. Listen, the reason Simon was not right with God and he was captive to sin was because he thought he could buy from God what God offers for free. It's a gift. You can't earn God's salvation through power, through money, through prestige, through achievement, through the likings of other people. It's a gift of sheer and undeserved grace through Jesus Christ for what he did for you. Philip understood that he preached the good news, not good advice, he was a heralder, he preached good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus, authority and person of Jesus. Verse 5, he went to Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. That's it. All other religions, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be freed from darkness, if you want to have a a guilt-free life and, and know that you are loved and accepted, you need to do these things. That is not the gospel. The gospel starts with Jesus. That's it. Paul said to the Corinthians on his second missionary journey, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul didn't mean that I've taught you nothing else, that you should only mesmerize that verse, that there's, there's not obedience, there's not a, 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 a following the footsteps of Jesus, there's not a, a life of repentance. That's not what he's saying. Life will change as a Christian. They didn't like the Samaritans. Now, all of a sudden, they're preaching to them. You will change. But what he's saying is the very beginning, the very starting place in your life has to be simply the fact that Jesus Christ offers you a free gift. You have to start, you and I have to start looking at not what you have done, but what Jesus has done. I I know this may shock you, but the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for you. His atoning sacrifice, he's the substitute. He died in your place. And when you truly come to Christ, relying on him, only on him, what he has done, and you accept the fact that you are by, you, you, you are, running to the mercy and the grace of God through Christ, then you could be set free from sin. Then your heart could be right with God. Listen, religion says, I will do, I will work, I will achieve, achieve and I obey God, and then God will accept me, forgive me, and I can be right with him. That's religion. The gospel is because of the work, the doing, the achievement of Christ on the cross, I am loved, accepted, and because of all that, I will obey Christ. Huge difference. The story about Charles Wesley. Some of your friends gathered together and they opened up Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And a man by the name of William Holland was one of the friends. And William Holland wrote this in his journal. Listen to this. Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud. That's the Galatians commentary by Martin Luther. At the words, what have we then nothing to do? No, nothing but only except of him who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and redemption. There came such a power over me, he says. There came such a power over me when those words were read that I cannot well describe it. My burden, my great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions perceiving me to perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. Now listen to this last thing he writes in his journal. When afterwards, when I went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Free! 
because of what Christ did for you. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't achieve it. It's a gift. And with that gift comes great power to obey, to love, to give, to be sacrificial. But it starts with a gift. Now, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, oh, I know that. Do you really? Are, are, are you living a life of joy because of this great gift? Are you being sacrificial because of this great gift? Are you reading your Bibles daily because of the great gift? Are, are you loving your neighbors because of this great gift? Or are you trying to earn something? That's a question only you can answer. See, don't you see, it's the recognition that Jesus is our righteousness. He is our redemption, that then we can have the power of God, the peace of God, and the burdens of our hearts lifted. Religion always starts with do, 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 do. Burden, 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 burden. But the gospel is, it's a free gift for those who repent. Turn to Jesus. So I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to respond as a family right now. The band's going to come up. Can we bow our heads together? Lord, in the quietness of our souls, Lord, we acknowledge that we can't do, do, do. We can't earn, earn, earn. We can't achieve our own righteousness. We can't bring to you anything that somehow makes you accept us and love us. We do acknowledge that you, because of your love for us, sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and is because of what Jesus has done. The work that Jesus, the achievement of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, that our sins can be forgiven. Lord, we pray as we respond. Lord, that you would give us Life to those who don't know you. That they would repent from their sins and trust you. We pray that your, their hearts would be renewed by the power of your spirit. We pray for those who do call on you, who do know you. That, Father, we may rest in the work of Jesus and be propelled into mission because of what Jesus has already done. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.